When men and women are in love, we try in all kinds of ways to communicate our love to that special other person. And one common way we do that is through love letters. Now today our love letters might actually be emails or even texts. But whatever the form, love letters are a unique way to communicate. And I've made kind of a hobby about collecting samples of them from the internet because people like to post things. And I've discovered that love letters sometimes bring out the hidden poet in many of us as we try to find those dramatic phrases that will communicate the depths of our feelings. Phrases like this one, you are my living treasure, the diamond in my life. Or this one, I could drown in your eyes. I've also discovered that sometimes as we offer words of praise for the other person, we we may feel the need to praise ourselves as well, like this person who wrote, please set your eyes upon these blissful words of mine written for you. And then, of course, there are love letters that are sincere and touching, like this one. Dearest, I want to grow old with you so we can finish our lives together. I vow I will treasure you and care for you until your very last breath. I love you beyond measure. That actually was part of a much longer love letter, a proposal of marriage. And the thing that I thought was amusing, it was written on a series of post-it notes. (laughs) Whatever works, right? Now, a lot of love letters are written during the early stages of a relationship. But after that, as our relationship settles down, we often move into the love note stage. That stage where... People in love will leave little notes for their significant other. And we've got a couple of examples to show you here. Now, you might have a hard time reading those words. There's this picture of the mushroom, and it says, I have so much room in my heart for you. <laughs> little corny, kind of cute, very touching. And then there's this next one. My darling husband, about the problem you had with the TV remote... You were right, there was something blocking the signal. It was this, the piece of black insulation tape I carefully cut and placed over the sensor. (laughs) I love you. It occurs to me that in our love letters and love notes and love texts, we express love in all kinds of ways. And I think this last note actually reveals something significant about this woman's love for her husband. And she recognized that his control of the remote and his dedication to TV watching was interfering with their relationship. So she took some loving action to highlight the issue. And I think from the tone of the note, we can see that she wasn't trying to be mean. She was trying to get her husband's attention. Here's what I think she was saying. I want our time together to focus more on us and less on the television. Sometimes a loving note with a word of correction might be just what a relationship needs to refocus. And it can be helpful in a friendship. It can be helpful in a marriage. And it also can be helpful, incredibly helpful, in the spiritual dimension of life. And that's why Jesus writes love letters. Jesus writes love letters 
to his people. And we find them in the book of Revelation where the Apostle John is given a unique set of instructions by the resurrected Jesus. John is told that he is to serve as a divine secretary recording words that Jesus personally dictates to him. And these letters then are supposed to go out to seven specific first century churches. Now, these letters from Jesus obviously aren't romantic, but let's never forget that God is love. And therefore, what our God communicates to us is shaped by love. And so a letter from Jesus is a love letter. And in these love letters, he offers words of affirmation and words of correction so that our connection with God will remain strong and healthy. And these words that Jesus dictates to John are not limited to those seven ancient churches. They are for every church in every age. Jesus writes these letters because he loves us. He loves his church. And he wants the best for us. This morning we're going to look at one of these love letters from Jesus. And we want to try to hear his words of love for us so that we increasingly can become the kind of believers and the kind of church that Jesus wants us to be. So let's take a look at the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Now this is Jesus speaking to John, and he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Now, this particular letter, like each of the seven love letters from Jesus, is introduced with a distinct image. Jesus is described in a distinctly different way for each church. And based on what is written earlier in Revelation, we understand some things about this image here. We know that the seven stars represent the angels of the churches. Not exactly sure what that means. Perhaps guardian angels that Jesus wants to watch over the churches. But that's what the stars represent, angels. And the seven lampstands represent the churches themselves. And Jesus is pictured here as holding the stars, the angels, in his hand. And walking among the lampstands, the churches. And we get a picture that symbolizes his power and his authority. And this image is perfect for the Ephesian Christians because we know from church history that they are a pretty prideful bunch. The city of Ephesus is an influential cultural center and a, and a seat of government, and the believers are prosperous, and they are proud of their church. And this image of Jesus reminds them that they are under his authority. And they're not pictured here as standouts. They simply are one of a community of churches. And then there's another humbling thing about this image. The churches are lampstands. They're not lamps. They don't generate light on their own. The light of the church comes from Jesus. And if we hold the light of Jesus in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives, then we're able to reflect his light into our church and out into our community. It's a reminder that we are not the center of attention. 
Jesus is. The church is not about us. It's about Jesus and about what he wants to do in us and through us. Jesus provides this image to the Ephesian Christians because he loves the church. He loves this church and he wants to free these people from self-centered pride because it is the foundational sin of humanity. Pride is number one on God's list of deadly sins because it's so harmful to our relationships with each other and our relationship with him. And so this very distinctive picture of Jesus holding the stars and walking among the lampstands hopefully will encourage the Ephesians to receive this letter, this love letter from the Lord, with some humility. And I hope that we can also hear this letter with some humility. Because we, like the Ephesians, like every church, We must learn how to recognize pride within ourselves and then with God's help learn how to eradicate it from our lives and our relationships because pride is the enemy of love. And Jesus wants his church to love. Now after this introduction that reminds the Ephesians who's really in charge, Then Jesus offers some words of loving affirmation. The fact is they're doing some things right, and Jesus wants to commend their behavior. And so we learn that they have persevered. They have faced persecution and hardship, yet they continue to carry out the work of the church. And evidently they know the scriptures well, so they cannot be led astray by phony leaders or false teachers or by those who promote ungodly practices. This is a church that wants to get the Bible right. They want to get their doctrine right. And they want to do the right things. There is much here for Jesus to commend. As I read what what Jesus says here, I, I get a picture of a congregation that's hard at work. And I think if we were able to travel back through time and step into the life of that church, I think we would discover a congregation with a calendar full of events. I think they'd be meeting for worship and taking communion to shut-ins, delivering meals to those who are sick. I think they'd be going to Bible studies and teaching themselves how to defend the faith. They would be busy. Yet it occurs to me that busyness by itself is not a sign of a healthy church. In fact, the Ephesians remind me of a church I know that is also hard at work busy with their church activities. Over time, though, their busyness seems to have become an end unto itself. They're busy because they're busy. And people in the church increasingly feel like they're just jumping from one activity to the next with no overall sense of purpose or direction. The church's official motto is, a busy church always serving. But the people have started to jokingly say it this way, a busy church always swerving because they feel like they're just swerving from one thing to the next without a clear sense of where they're going. And and you see, it tells us that a church can be doing much that is good, but still miss the target. Jesus wants us to know that everything we do must fit into God's larger purposes for us, or we cease to be a church, because it's about his purposes. 
And for the believers in Ephesus, all of their busyness, all of their activity has caused them to drift away from God's most foundational purpose, the purpose of love. Love for God. Love for others. And the result is that these believers are engaged in right actions but with loveless motives. And that simply cannot be allowed to continue. Not in the church of Jesus Christ. Fortunately, Jesus doesn't give up on them. He loves them. So in the next part of the letter, he challenges them to rekindle their love. Looking at verse 4 again, Yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you have had, you had at first. So consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The Ephesians are busy. Busy doing the work of the church, but why are they doing what they do? Well, we're not specifically told, but clearly it's not for love. And so I imagine that for some, they're probably doing what they do out of a sense of duty. For some, it's probably based on this idea that God has given them rules for behavior and they need to keep the rules, so they're trying to be godly rule keepers. I imagine that for some, it might just be simply deeply ingrained habit. We do what we do because we've always done it. And woven through all of this is their deeply ingrained pride. Because whatever their motive, whatever's driving them, it's not love. Pride is the enemy of love. And as Jesus makes clear, these people have forsaken, forsaken their first and most foundational love. And we know what that love is and what it looks like because Jesus tells us so clearly in what we call the great commandment. He says we are to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and we are to love our neighbor, which by the way is every other human being. We are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That's the love which makes a church a church because it keeps our eyes on God and on God's purposes for us and through us. It's the love that defeats our self-centered pride. And it's a love that the Ephesian believers, our ancestors in the faith, it's a love that they have forsaken. And and that word is such a, a tragic, desolate word because it tells us that the Ephesians have literally abandoned that love And it also means they didn't do it deliberately. They moved away from this love as a result of neglect. Which, if we think about it, is usually how love disappears from a relationship. Through neglect. And this lack of love in their community of faith is not just a mistake. It's a core problem. It's a core problem because God is love and all of his actions toward us are motivated by love. Jesus died and rose because of love. You and I are forgiven because of love. And if we do not respond to God with love and if our interactions with one another are not shaped by love, then we are completely out of step with God. 
And if we ever reach the point where we forsake that love, then we become a church in name only, not in essence. It seems to me it's kind of like a married couple whose love has grown stale because it's been neglected. And they don't have a desire to be unfaithful, so they maintain their structure of married life and they may eat meals together and discuss paying the bills and take some trips, but there's nothing that they do intentionally to generate passion and keep their love alive. They settle for complacent routine. They do what they do because they've always done it and because of neglect love ends up being forsaken and they wind up becoming more like roommates than husband and wife and at the worst it's a marriage in name only not in essence Jesus doesn't want that for his people he wants so much more for us And not just in our marriages, but in our life together as a church. And that's why he gives the Ephesians here such a stern warning. If they don't get their act together, he's going to remove their lampstand from its place, which means he's going to take away their church. And why would he do that? Because without the motivation of God's love, then they're not a church. They're just a social club or a social service agency or some combination thereof. It is vital for them to repent and shift their focus back to Jesus. They must recognize that they are not healthy and they are in a downward spiral. They need to put on the brakes and change direction and that only will happen when they repent. This is a defining moment for these believers. A moment when they need to make an honest self-assessment. They need to be honest with themselves and honest with God about what needs to change. And Jesus essentially says, get back to basics. Get back to doing what you used to do. Do the things you did at first. And he doesn't tell us exactly what those are, but I think we can draw some pretty accurate ideas. For example... They need to engage in basic spiritual practices, the kind that cultivate love for Jesus. Practices like prayer, but not offering rote, canned, routine prayers. Praying in a way that becomes a conversation between us and the living God. Practices like Bible reading, but not simply and solely to gain knowledge. Instead, reading God's word to connect with the author of the word. Practices like fellowship, where we spend time with other believers. And not only to talk about news and weather and sports and health, but also being intentional about talking about spiritual issues, talking about the life of faith, and finding ways to pray with and for each other and to encourage each other in the life of faith. And as I think about this for the Ephesian Christians, I find myself wondering, are those kinds of spiritual practices integrated into your life and into mine? Are we doing the vital core things that will keep us connected to God and cause our love for him to flourish? When we hang out with other believers, what do we talk about? Are we ever intentional about finding ways to encourage each other in the life of faith? 
Jesus is urging as strongly as he can his church to get back to core practices because that shifts their focus and it will help them to rekindle their love for God and for others. And I think in so many areas of life, when we've drifted away from essential things due to neglect, that move back to the basics is what reinvigorates things. And in the case of a marriage, in the case of the church, when we get back to basics, we shift our focus and we rekindle our love. And several years ago, I heard an amazing story that emphasizes this point. And I want to tell you up front, it's not a made-up story. It's true, and I was told it by one of the participants. Okay? So here's a married couple. They're not doing very well, and the wife decides to pursue a divorce. Without telling her husband, she goes and consults with an attorney. And among other things, she tells the attorney, I am really angry, and I want this divorce to hurt him. And so they concoct what they think is a masterful plan. For the next two months, the wife is going to act especially loving. She's going to pretend that things are improving. And then at the point when her husband thinks, hey, we're back on track, that's when she's going to hit him with the divorce papers. The goal is to offer him false hope and then dash those hopes. And she thought, oh, this is going to be sweet. So two months go by and the attorney never hears a word. Three months go by and then the attorney gets a call burn the divorce papers we're going on our second honeymoon you see for three months this couple had shifted their focus and instead of neglecting their love they had nurtured their love and yes for the wife it started out as play acting but when she and her husband began doing the things that they did at first kind of like what Jesus says When they started doing again the things that caused them to fall in love in the first place, it stopped becoming play acting and it became love once again for both of them. Attention to the basics. Putting back into place the things that we have neglected rekindles love. Love for others. Love for God. Sometimes we just need a wake-up call to get our attention so we get back to the basics. And sometimes it might be something as simple as a wife putting a piece of tape over the sensor of the TV remote. Maybe that's the wake-up call to say, when we're together, let's spend more time on us and less time on the TV. Or a wake-up call like Jesus saying to the Ephesians, do the things you did at first. It is a passionate plea for them to learn how to love again. And we need to recognize that for Jesus, this this statement of the Ephesians is way more than a wake-up call. It's It's a severe word of warning. And yet, even after this, this statement of of tough love, very tough love, he offers a final word of affirmation, highlighting the fact that the Ephesians refused to accept the practices of the Nicolaitans. And I find that so refreshing and so touching and so heartwarming. Because, you see, Jesus doesn't want to end on a note of correction. He'd rather end on a note of affirmation. What a sign of his love and care for his church. And by the way, that example is really good for us. 
to end on a note of affirmation, on something that is sincerely positive. So as a little side note, who are these people, the Nicolaitans? Well, they were a sect within Christianity that followed the teachings of Balaam, who was a sorcerer and a false prophet. And they promoted a life of unrestrained self-indulgence. One early church leader described them as people who abandon themselves to pleasure like goats. That's a, that's a vivid description, isn't it? Now, as, as followers of Jesus, we're supposed to be engaged with the culture. But the Nicolaitans were so engaged that they behaved just like the most extreme elements of the culture. And fortunately, the Ephesians see the danger of that, and so they keep that teaching and that lifestyle out of their church. And yet, this final word of praise does not negate the core problem. These believers must They must rekindle their love for God and others so that they can get back to to carrying out everything they do based on God's purposes. All of their busyness must have meaning, and it's a meaning shaped by love for God and love for others. And because our God is merciful, the believers in Ephesus now have a chance to get back on track. If they take this love letter from Jesus seriously, they will be victorious spiritually victorious people get to eat from God's tree of life. Now, if that reference is obscure to you, here's the deal. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, humanity was cut off from the tree of life. And what Jesus now is telling us is that a day is going to come when the tree of life will be restored to us. And we will eat from that tree again in paradise if we are victorious in this life. What Jesus is saying here is an incredible promise of restoration, that there will be a day when we will regain all that was lost in Eden and even more. It is a promise of a better life and a better world. It is a promise of eternity with God. And it's a promise that becomes a reality when followers of Jesus cling with everything that is in us to our first love. And we never let that drift away through neglect. As I said at the outset, I believe these love letters from Jesus are for every church in every age. I believe he gives these letters to us so we can learn from the experiences of our spiritual ancestors like the the believers in Ephesus. And so as I contemplate what this means, it occurs to me that that I see some reflections of us in this letter. Like the Ephesians, we emphasize sound biblical teaching, and we work hard to be sure that we get our doctrine right. We do not want false teaching to creep in and lead people astray. Yet we cannot do that while at the same time neglecting love. That's where the Ephesians went wrong. We cannot allow ourselves to do what we do out of obligation or duty. And therefore, as we worship and as we study, as we interact with each other and with people and with God and with people outside our church, then all of our actions must, they must be motivated by love. A deep, heartfelt love for God so that his love drives our agenda. A love for others 
so that our interactions with each other are shaped by God's purposes. A godly love that leaves no place for pride. A community based on love where we lay aside our personal preferences and personal agendas and we focus on the unity of our fellowship, this marvelous community of faith of which we're privileged to be a part. This amazing love of Jesus, which allows us to experience his light in our lives. And then we can reflect his light to others. And we can reflect his light to the community around us. In, In light of what Jesus says here, I think we all could ask ourselves this question. Am I motivated to act because of my love for God and others? Or have I allowed my love to dissipate? And if we sense that our love has faded, we don't need to give up. Because just like the Ephesians, we can respond to the invitation of Jesus. And we can learn to love again. I I don't know where you find yourself this morning. But whether your love needs to be rekindled, or whether it's flaming hot... I hope we all would embrace the promise of Jesus and strive to be victorious. Victorious not through self-centered pride, but victorious through humble love. This amazing love for God and for others, that love of Jesus which does transform us, the love that actually makes us into a church. Because only the love of Jesus will sustain us in this life. Only the love of Jesus will give us hope in this life. Only the love of Jesus will enable us to truly encourage each other through the ups and downs of life. And only the love of Jesus will equip you and me individually and as a church to make a difference in this very broken world in which we live. Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches question is this. Are we listening? Are we listening? 